There's a boggart in the president's cabinet, and it looks like a very small crowd. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for fact checkers. So, you have chosen to study divination, the most difficult of all magical arts. I must warn you at the outset that if you do not have the sight, there is very little I will be able to teach you. Books can take you only so far in this field. You, boy, is your grandmother well? I think so. I wouldn't be so sure if I were you, dear. I'm Heather Price Wright. And I'm Alex Dallenberg. Welcome to The Quibbler, episode 17. This week we're reading Talons and Tea Leaves and the Boggart in the Wardrobe in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, in case you were confused which book we were even in. So get ready to confront your deepest fears. Oh yeah. Also get ready to confront spoilers and cursing. Damn. That's not quite as hard to confront, but there will be spoilers and we will say fuck a lot. Like a lot. There are some adult themes to get excited about this week. They are artificial intelligence, death omens, too much perfume, first year teachers, and oversharing. What happened this week? In this week's chapters, classes get underway at Hogwarts School for Witchcraft and Wizardry. Harry, Ron, and Hermione have to find their new classroom, Divination. They're having a hard time finding it, but they get help from Sir Cadogan, who is this kind of Quixotic knight that lives inside a painting with delusions of grandeur. So he takes them on a grand quest to find the Divination class. Uh, Once inside, Divination is basically like a really musty Bath and Body Works. (laughs) You know, like Harry's like, man, this is an overpowering odor. That's Professor Sybil Trelawney's class. She looks like a big glimmery bug, and she teaches the future, discovering the future. So Harry has a very upsetting first divinations class. She starts him right into reading tea leaves, and they show that he's going to die. He has the Grim, the a giant spectral dog that haunts churchyards, which is a wizarding omen of death. So everyone leaves Divination very freaked out. They head on over to Professor McGonagall, who says, Divination is fucking bullshit. And Professor Trelawney starts every year telling kids, telling the students that someone is going to uh, kick the bucket. So, you know, a little bit of staff drama there. Hermione is not impressed by Divination and says her arithmetic class is way better. So Hermione, not really into the kind of fuzzy social science. It's not really a social science, but we'll get to that. But then Ron is like, you haven't fucking taken arithmancy. Right. So there's a mystery. Something weird is happening. Hagrid also has his first lesson. It starts off pretty well because he gets a whole, I guess it's a flock of hippogriffs, which are these horse eagle creatures that are pretty badass. But then it goes completely off the rails when Draco is just Draco-like to one, you know. Draco's an asshole and calls it a ugly brute, and so he gets a giant gash from the very big eagle horse's talons, Buckbeak. Uh, the hippogriff's name is Buckbeak. That scratches him. It's more like a gash. I don't know. It's like it's enough to go to the hospital wing for. So, Haggard gets rip roaring drunk because 
It's a scandal that a hippogriff attacked a student's... Did anything else of use happen there? Well, he's, like, threatening to get Hagrid fired. Right, yeah. So, Draco milks it for all it's worth and tells his dad, who still has clout with the school governors for some reason, even though he basically tried to blackmail them all in the last book into getting rid of Dumbledore. But, anyway... Sometimes uh, malignant elements in our politics are not easily dispensed with, despite being completely discredited, so... That happens. Uh, Harry, Ron, and Hermione try to reassure Hagrid that his teaching career did not die on day one. Meanwhile, Draco is milking his injury for all it's worth. The gang suffer through a particularly unpleasant potions class where Draco is having them do all his, like, grunt work. Chopping up caterpillars, cutting daisy roots. Is it daisy roots? I think so. Some kind of, yeah. Like, yeah, it's weird that it's not some... It's all these, like, magic plants, and then you just, like, here's some daisies. Uh, and shriveled things. He has to skin... Harry has to skin Draco's shriveled things, so. Which sounds like a double entendre Splash Vic! <laughs> Harry and Draco in the shrivel big. Um, I don't know why I sang that. Yeah, but I don't uh, Professor Lupin's first lesson, on the other hand, is badass. He has them all tackle a bogart, which is a shape shifting creature that takes the form of your greatest fear. So all the students have their first ever actually useful defense against the dark arts class and take turns tackling the bogart. But. At the very end of the class, Harry's about to take it on, and Lupin stops him. So Harry's like, oh man, does Professor Lupin think I'm a sissy because I passed out on the Hogwarts Express when the Dementor came? And he was thinking that the Bogart would become the Dementor because they're the worst. So that's where we are this week. Let's talk about Sir Cadogan. Yeah, I guess the main question of this segment would be, what the hell is Sir Cadogan? What the fuck is Sir Cadogan? And Not just Circa Duggan, though. What, the what fuck are is the, the paintings? What the fuck is the fat lady? What is the deal with the sentient Hogwarts art? So it's funny because this, by itself, this is a really funny set piece where they meet this completely, this bombastic short knight and his little fat pony that he can't mount because he's in this heavy armor and he leads them on this crazy, well, first he threatens to kill them. Right, but he's in a painting, yeah, so but it's he, fine. Yeah, he can't do that. Yeah, so, like, that's weird. It's like, back, you dogs. And then he leads them on this epic charge through the halls. Listen, said Harry, taking advantage of the knight's exhaustion. We're looking for the North Tower. You don't know the way, do you? A quest! The knight's rage seemed to vanish instantly. He clanked to his feet and shouted, Come! Follow me, dear friends, and we shall find our goal, or else shall perish bravely in the charge. He gave the sword another fruitless tug, tried and failed to mount the fat pony, gave up and cried, On foot, then, good sirs and gentle lady, on, on. And he ran, clanking loudly into the left side of the frame and out of sight. They hurried after him along the corridor, following the sound of his armor. Every now and then they spotted him running through a picture ahead. Be of stout heart! The worst is yet to come! yelled the knight, and they saw him reappear in front of an alarmed group of women in crinolines, whose picture hung on the wall of a narrow spiral staircase. 
Puffing loudly, Harry, Ron, and Hermione climbed the tightly spiraling steps, getting dizzier and dizzier until at last they heard the murmur of voices above them and knew they had reached the classroom. Farewell, cried the knight, popping his head into a painting of some sinister-looking monks. Farewell, my comrades in arms. If ever you have need of noble heart and steely sinew, call upon Sir Cadogan. Yeah, we'll call you muttered Ron as the knight disappeared. If we ever need someone mental. I mean, he embraces it, he embraces it you know? He leans in, it's really funny. So, you know, uh, Sir Cadogan has ideas about himself. He has goals. He has motivations. He seems to have an internal life. Um, Maybe even a soul. But he lives inside a painting to which, from which he can never escape. Yeah, what is he? What is he made of? Like, what is his life? It's like artificial intelligence that gains sentience. It's like wizard AI, <laughs> right? Yeah, a bit. Well, I've been wondering, I've been waiting for us to have a chance to talk about this, and one really hasn't come up yet because we see this with all the pictures because it's not just the paintings. You know, photographs move, people, and all of Lockhart's photographs would do their hair in the morning, uh, if you remember that, or uh, leave in an earlier chapter. Percy has a picture of himself and his girlfriend that Ron accidentally spills tea on, and Penelope Clearwater is like kind of she's trying to hide her nose because she looks all blotchy now because there's tea on the picture. So. I mean, well, they have, okay. like, a weird degree of... But the paintings especially. Well, no, I think we have to differentiate between... Also between representations of real people, which are what the photographs are. Also, the photographs can't talk. The photographs move mm. and um, move in and out of their frames, but they don't speak. Because Harry can't talk to his parents, for example, in the form right. of, like, a photo album. Yeah. The paintings, which don't seem to be necessarily of real people they seem to be a thing unto themselves well so some of them like we found out find out later that Dumbledore has these like confabs with all the portraits of past headmasters in his office right so like a question there is like is that where those people's like everlasting souls live or, or is that like an ai sort of like generated version of their intelligence but in this is, case which weirdly is possible in our own world it is because yeah. uh i'm could, thinking of ai i'm thinking of ai chatbots and they're definitely not as sophisticated as sir Duggan, but um you could take and i'll link to this in the newsletter about a, a person took like, the entire, like, texting and email corpus of everything they'd ever written of a, of a friend who had, uh, who had passed away and made an AI chatbot to chat with, and they would respond the way that person, the deceased person, would have. So... That is spooky as fuck. Yeah, and there's also a Black, there's a Black Mirror episode uh, about the same thing, but it's also been done in real life. So... Well... Not... not I don't think these chatbots are extremely, they're not extremely sophisticated yet, but. Okay, point being though. Yeah. That's what make... Harry Potter has in the world. Well, that's what I would imagine. Yeah, so the question is, are the paintings 
are they holding souls or are they intelligent? Are they are they an artificial intelligence? Right. That's my question. Mm-hmm. They pass the Turing test. Yeah, they do. How do we define the Turing test? It's if it, it basically, like most simply, it's if it fools you into thinking that you're communicating with a fellow with human. A person, yeah. I think the Turing test is text based, but if Sir Cadogan could type or write a letter, he would definitely pass it. Right. The only difference between a human man and Sir Cadogan is that he is eternally trapped in a painting. Although the worlds seem pretty expansive because he can, they can all visit each other's paintings. Right. But the other is thing there is, anything, can they go deeper into the painting? Yeah, I can can't tell if they can envision... sort of go backward into the world. Like is what this... I'm wondering is if it's like, you know, in um, Mary Poppins, mm-hmm when they hop into the chalk drawing and there is a whole world rendered in that chalk drawing that you can like go back and back and back through. Like the, she points to, now I'm just talking about Mary Poppins. Yeah, that's but fine. like she points to like the bridge kind of in the, toward the horizon in the in the painting and she's like, if you cross that bridge, you get to the fair or whatever. <laughs> and that, that actually exists. So I wonder if there's like a whole painted realm in which Sir Cadogan can live or if he's confined to what's visible in a Hogwarts painting. It seems to me that there is, because... Well, yeah, he seems to have whole adventures. Like, he mm-hmm. seems to have a whole... All of them, the Fat Lady, too, they all seem to have, like, a whole life. Right. But it's fucking spooky, if you really think about it. So is it magically painted, or then, it, or is it just a regular painting that's been enchanted? To... That's my other question, is, like, are wizard painters inherently able to create these, like, living artworks, or... Do you have to enchant it after you paint it? Or is it painted in a different way? Like, are there literal just oil and canvas and, you know, just wizard artists? And because they're magical, they're able to make these living paintings. Uh, So many questions. No, but they're not living because they're not able to die. Okay, I guess I don't mean living, but these lifelike. Right. In in that they can talk and communicate and, like, live well, whole that's, existences. That's another weird thing. Oh, Sir yeah, Kedogan no, they're deathless. Like trapped in purgatory, basically. It's insane. Unable I'm... to mature or... Yeah. Uh... <laughs> it's very... The paintings are very spooky. Nor did he ever have a childhood. No. no if they're, he does, they, they're it rendered... was something that was implanted in him. Ooh. Because he was rendered. Yeah. So the extent to which Does he, has, he have a past? Yeah, I don't. Not technically. No, he was just but I wonder conjured. if that's. I wonder if they're like imbued with a past. Like I wonder if they do have like implanted memories and like selves. But that's so, really that's really fucked up because it never happened to them. So like, what? so many questions. I know, and like <laughs> then there's like the question of like the ethics of creating these beings. Mm-hmm. Like there is there a whole like ethical committee about like wizard art. Where you talk about, like, what can you... Because, like, okay, for example, what if you paint a scene of, like, torture? Like, what if you paint something horrible happening to a person? Is that, like, a being that's experiencing that for eternity? Like, I have so many questions about these paintings. Even Sir Cadogan is... He's experiencing, like, pain and discomfort and, like, distrust and fear... At the beginning of this scene where he's he thinks that these are enemies. So here you've created this this being, this artificially intelligent being who perceives threats. Yeah. Oh man. Okay, we could do this forever. The yeah, painting thing is crazy. We might have to we might have to assign ourselves some homework on this and think yeah. about like look at the like ethics of uh We have to think about a lot about wizard AI now because I 
now that we've started talking about this, I I'm fascinated. And if you have some thoughts on this, I'm very curious. Especially, yeah. I know, like, we have at least some listeners who work in tech and, like, know a little bit about this. Aaron, um, what do you know about this? I believe some ethicists are starting to discuss what is, like, I, I, this is, like, a, I think I read this on Vice, which, like, it's such a Vice fucking story. But there's some ethicist who is says we need to stop basically killing video game characters because... They're like programs. Right. I don't think we're at that level yet of sophistication, but I think the argument is once programs have their own motives and can be like thwarted in them, then they're... Beings. Yeah. In some way. So... Yeah. Well, this was a fun can of worms. I don't know. Yeah. It's a... Whoa. There is a lot to say about Sybil Trelawney. First of all, I guess we have our eternal quibble of... Why are none of the Hogwarts teachers qualified to do their jobs? <laughs> like, she, she's pretty clearly a quack in this chapter. I know we kind of find out otherwise later, but her, her teaching is ineffective at very least, and her future gazing seems deeply suspect. Yes. So, that I mean, just like, why is she a teacher? How did she get hired? Is my first question. Well, Dumbledore. Right, I know. I mean, I know the answer to that. But, like, I guess the follow-up question is, like, what the fuck, Dumbledore? As per usual, why did you make this terrible decision? Well, we learned that she has a gift of occasional... Well, we can get... I don't know. We can get into this. No, we'll get into it later. But I I think the question stands, like, (laughs) she is clearly not a good enough divinator to teach other people how to do it. Well, she doesn't really teach them at all. She does the classic Hogwarts thing where she says, okay, everybody, open up to page 352, read the text, and fill out... And then do like, a thing. Do, like, do what it says. That's not teaching. I could do that. Right. Uh, <laughs> no, that's not teaching. Their, their pedagogy is really... Snape does the same thing a lot of the times. He's just like, follow the instructions, and then I'm going to shout at you if you, like, don't follow them well. He just well. sits at his desk. It's like, it's like, Hogwarts is basically run by substitute teachers. <laughs> they are all basically subs. It's true. You know? Well, so let's get back to Professor Trelawney, though. Right. So, the, yeah, they have to read the, pour out the tea leaves, and then cross-reference it with, like, a chart. Remember in Dead Poet Society how they have that chart? That shows you the quality of a poem, and you they you have to like cross reference, and yeah, you know it's like the example of awful of bad teaching, of bad teaching, yeah, right. They're looking at their tea leaves, and the extent of the lesson is, all right, kids, now see into the future. Yeah, that's what she says. <laughs> Think basically. hard. Look at your leaves, and then see the future. <laughs> There's no middle step where you're like how. Um, it also seems dumb to teach something that you either can or can't do innately. Like, McGonagall says later on, like, true seers are fairly rare. So why even have a class for divination when it seems pretty evident by everything people say about the art that you can't teach someone to be a seer? Any more than you can teach someone to be, like... I don't know, like a super taster. Right. Like what? there are things that are like, it seems like it's in, in some way like inborn. Right. What's the ac- What's the academic value of having divination as 
a subject. Right, when you either can or cannot divine the future. Right. It would like, be like if we had dunking class. Right, like exactly. Ba- basketball dunking. <laughs> it was like, all right, actually, you could learn how to dunk. You could learn how to dunk. Possibly. You absolutely could. Yeah. I think it's more like something like, it's like if you went around trying to teach someone to be colorblind or not colorblind. Right, right. Like, you were like, this is how you see red and green. And everyone was like, if you can't, you just can't. Um, so that's a quibble. Well, yeah, it doesn't make sense to teach this as a class. And all of them, I mean, the only thing that this class serves to do is traumatize people. So before we talk about Harry getting told he's going to die, which we have a lot of things to say about, I also want to say, so there's kind of this open question in this chapter and like throughout the book if of like, is Professor Trelawney making actual predictions or like decent guesses that it's pretty easy to kind of like project onto them truth Mm -hmm. so she makes the prediction about lavender brown the thing you're dreading will happen in october or whatever and then she says one of our number will leave us forever both of those things happen to the extent that the people who are already believers are like oh she predicted that did you see Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just confirmation bias. Right. Well, it's like Nostradamus or something like that, where you can read it right. so many ways. More that... to the point, it's like reading your horoscope. Mm-hmm. You ever have the experience where you read your horoscope and you're like, oh my God, that was exactly my day. And like, obviously this fucking newspaper didn't predict your day. It's it, just it, like... It just said you will have feelings. Right. It's like just really easy to be like, oh, that's so true. Oh my God, it's so me. It's like <laughs> looking at a meme, basically. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, that's so me. That's my life. That's so my life. <laughs> that's just confirmation bias. Or BuzzFeed quiz. Word. Yeah, it's basically like doing like, an internet quiz. I and you're always like, knew it I was Hermione. Me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like her, her predictions. And okay, she takes one fucking look at Neville. And she's like, you're going to break a bunch of teacups. Like that's which, not seeing the future. Which freaks him out. And then he does. Right. Also, she does seem to be, I would say, let's give her a little bit of credit. She seems to be fairly regular perceptive. Like, she seems to be the kind of person who can size up a person and give them the kind of prediction that's going to, like, send a tingle down their spine. Well, that's what a true, that's what, like, a fortune, a, a talented medium does, I suppose. It's also what fucking charlatans do. Right. I mean, it's what Gilderoy Lockhart figured out how to do. He was like, what do people want? I'll give them that. Yes. So I don't think that in any of these scenes she is actually fortune telling. Um, also, she predicts Harry's death in front of all of his peers. Yeah. Which just, even if you think that's, even if she was actually seeing something, that's fucked. Don't tell him that in class. It's like breaking doctor-patient confidentiality, basically. Yeah. Oh, and she's so dramatic about it, she screams. And drops the cup. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like there's a Hippocratic Oath. Yeah, that is, well, there actually is. Is there? Well, to the extent that... It's not quite like a Hippocratic Oath, but this is something I knew from interviewing a tarot reader a long time ago for uh, a newspaper I was working for. And um, professional fortune tellers and psychics have a code of ethics that they adhere to. Of course they do. It's a profession. Yeah, it's a profession. And you may or may not believe in, uh, you know, what they're selling, but they take it very seriously. And, or there uh, are those among them who take yes, it seriously. Yes, yeah, there are those among them who take it seriously. And well, you might think it's funny that fortune tellers would have professional codes of ethics because it seems so shady to begin with, but 
uh, I don't know, or does it seem shady? I don't know. Um, I don't think it seems inherently shady. I think there are shady no, yeah, yeah. people among them. Yeah, and uh, yes, that's it. So those, the people who charge you a thousand, like charge you thousands of dollars to remove curses that don't exist, that's bad for everyone in business. Because like right. the more stories that are out in the media about that, like the less likely your little palmistry stand is going to get like people coming to it. So anyway, fortune tellers take ethics really seriously. And uh, there's a professional code of, I've looked at a couple professional codes of ethics to brush up on it. And I don't think based on my kind of cursory reading of various medium and psychic societies, I don't think professor Trelawney crossed any red lines here. I mean, the main thing you're not supposed to do is tell people they have a curse and, only you can remove it, and they need to. You need to keep paying money. Like that's a that's a clear scam. So Trelawney's not doing that. She may have crossed some confidentiality lines because they really do treat it like a therapist business, basically. And I think that's what a lot of people get out of it. They just want to go talk to somebody. Yeah, I agree. So by telling Harry he's going to die in front of everyone, that's maybe. But there's no ethical sort of rule or like guidelines about predicting someone's death. Period. Like not that, that I not that I could tell. And if anybody is like kind of into the psychic arts or knows more about this than we do, let us know because I'm not. As far as I could tell, you're allowed. It's fair game to tell someone they're going to die. Yeah, but that seems. Also, he's a child. Yeah. I mean, it seems different. Well, actually, there are. Let me read. Hold on. We can interpret this. All right, so we're reading from the American Tarot Association's Code of Ethics. Um, so, I mean, most of it's kind of boilerplate. I'll serve the best interests of my clients, conducting my professional activities without causing or intending to cause harm. So that's a possibility, like undue trauma. Yeah, she seems to be um, deliberately causing harm to Harry and all of his classmates by telling them that something horrible is going to happen when she knows for a fact that she's just doing it for, dr- for right. like, drama. Um. I will keep confidential the names of clients and all information shared or discussed during readings, unless otherwise requested by the client or required by the court of law, a court of law. I will recommend clients consult a licensed professional for advice of a legal, financial, medical, or psychological nature that I am not qualified to provide. If trained in one of these areas, I will clearly differentiate between the tarot reading and any professional advice additionally provided. So overall, it seems like Professor Trelawney is not a very ethical. She seems, in fact, like a wildly uh, unethical practitioner of this branch of magic. And and, and several other kind of medium associations uh, follow this, like similar, have similar guidelines. So I think Professor Trelawney is is I don't actually think it matters whether or not she is a true seer. I think that she is pretty clearly incapable of appropriately educating children <laughs> yeah. and she should not be a teacher and I think it's actually she's one of the more despicable hiring choices that Dumbledore makes other than you know all of the other despicable hiring choices <laughs> but she's providing no educational value and she's harming people like Snape is a disaster but he's teaches potions potions like they fucking learn how to make potions yeah they learn how to make a shrinking solution yeah so so, but professor trelawney is providing them with no skills because you can't again let me emphasize you seem not to be able to learn how to be a medium or psychic it seems either possessed or not possessed like she tells hermione that she doesn't have a clear inner eye so 
maybe you can like train it. Maybe it's like a growth mindset thing. But um, it doesn't seem teachable. But I also think I want to talk a little bit about Hermione's reaction to it. Because she's kind of a bitch to the rest of the, especially the rest of the women in her class, the rest of the girls in her class. Um, which kind of annoys me in this scene. Because like Lavender Brown and Pavardi Patil and like a couple of the other girls are like super fucking into Professor Trelawney. And they think she's like very cool. And Hermione's basically like, y'all are silly bitches. <laughs> which is rude. Well, she says, yeah, she sees it as very woolly and imprecise and fantastical. Which seems, so I know we just spent the last five minutes or so dumping on divination. But it seems crazy to just write off divination, given the fact that, Hermione, you're muggle-born. Until three years ago, you didn't even know magic existed. How do you know people can't tell the future? Right. No, and I don't think <laughs> the... The fact is, it's not that people can't tell the future. Right. It's just that it's a hard... It's, it's a dumb thing to have as an academic subject. Right. Well, Hermione argues that, uh, that divination is not possible. Right. So that's the thing. And that is which where we, I which, find... Which we learn is possible. I, I, I find Hermione to be actually incredibly closed-minded and pedantic in these scenes because she's just like, there's no way that's true. And I'm like... Fucking hippogriffs are true. Like, you're, the whole, Sir Cadogan exists. Like, the whole world you live in is teeming with impossible. Your best friend survived a killing curse for no reason. Yeah. Like, like, magic is real. It just. Her magic is real, Hermione. Ron looked at Hermione as though she had gone mad. Hermione, if Harry's seen a grim, that's, that's bad, he said. My, my Uncle Billius saw one and. And he died 24 hours later. Coincidence, said Hermione airily, pouring herself some pumpkin juice. You don't know what you're talking about, said Ron, starting to get angry. Grim scare the living daylights out of most wizards. There you are then, said Hermione in a superior tone. They see the Grim and die of fright. The Grim's not an omen. It's the cause of death, and Harry's still with us because he's not stupid enough to see one and think, right, well, I'd better kick the bucket then. Ron mouthed wordlessly at Hermione, who opened her bag, took out her new arithmancy book, and propped it open against the juice jug. I think divination seems very woolly, she said, searching for her page. A lot of guesswork, if you ask me. There was nothing woolly about the Grim in that cup said Ron hotly. You didn't seem quite so confident when you were telling Harry it was a sheep, said Hermione coolly. Professor Trelawney said you didn't have the right aura. You just don't like being bad at something for a change. He had touched a nerve. Hermione slammed her arithmancy book down on the table so hard that bits of meat and carrot flew everywhere. If being good at divination means I have to pretend to see death omens in a lump of tea leaves, I'm not sure I'll be studying it much longer. That lesson was absolute rubbish compared with my arithmancy class. She snatched up her bag and stalked away. It's weird that you have to convince Hermione that this one kind of random branch of magic is is real. And I'm not arguing that it's not real. I'm just arguing that Professor Trelawney does not effectively teach it. it it's a... On the part of J.K. Rowling, though, it's a really believable character flaw. Uh, or I, I don't even know if it's No, a, it's a flaw. It's a flaw? Okay. I think that she reacts with 
an unpleasant amount of closed-mindedness to something that she isn't automatically good at. It's a good bit, which Ron points out. Which Ron is right. I usually don't agree with Ron when he assesses Hermione's character, but Ron is totally right. He's like, just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's not real. Right. It's a good bit of character building. It really is. Uh, no. And if I, you, you know, it, it, um, I don't want to say humanizes Hermione. She's pretty human already, but... It's a good flaw. Yeah. Like, it's a really real, rich, believable flaw. And so often, the flaw, especially that the main girl has, is like, I'm clumsy. (laughs) I don't even know how pretty I am. So it's this, like, more, it's this very grounding human flaw that Hermione is pretty unable to see beyond the things that are directly interesting to her. She's, she... She's really dismissive of other people's interests because she's so smart and so with it that she's like, why would you even be into that? She's yeah. kind of Leslie Nopish. A she's little bit, yeah. Also kind of Heatherish. <laughs> I actually really relate to Hermione in these scenes because I too am fairly dismissive of things that aren't easy for me. I decide that they're dumb. Um, as a defense mechanism, which is pretty clearly what Hermione's doing. She's a perfectionist. And she's got some imposter syndrome as a mudblood. And she's just like... Muggle-born, please. Sorry. She's got some imposter syndrome as a muggle-born. So she's dismissive of a branch of magic that she can't do rather than, you know, maybe delve into the more complicated issues of not wanting to be bad at anything. So, like, I get it. I empathize with it. I possess those qualities. And McGonagall has the same... Oh, I, sometimes yeah. I think McGonagall and Hermione might actually be the same person, just like projected <laughs> into the future. Like, I, I actually think that's maybe a fan theory, and I think it's maybe true. Yeah, they're very similar in that way. Um, one thing I, I like that there are these academic turf wars within magic because McGonagall is completely dismissive of divination, says it's a very impres- the most imprecise brand of magic. Which is uh, this idea of precise versus imprecise magic. It's kind of this magical version of sciences versus humanities. Like you need you need both, but there are these there are these kind of uh, fights within Hogwarts because Professor Trelawney's opening talk to the class is really reminiscent of Snape's in Sorcerer's Stone. She says, "Okay, a lot of wizards are great at." disappearings and loud bangs but they don't understand none of the subtleties of you know the rhythms of time and space and the future and uh right snape and snape says you'll find little foolish wand waving here so i like this i like this fight between the people who are like magic is not just charms and uh spells and spells magic is also you know finding unseen magical properties in daisy roots or tea leaves like magic is more than just your badass magic wand right and i think that's an interesting point for from professor trelawney and i actually think like okay even professor mcgonagall says she says true seers are rare she doesn't say divination doesn't work or exist Mm -hmm. but i also like i i actually really feel a lot of warmth toward McGonagall in that scene because what she's mostly doing is helping Harry. Yes. Like her main aim in being really dismissive of Trelawney is just to be like, HP, 
your life has been hard as fuck and you are not going to die this year. And do your homework. Also, you have to just fucking do your homework. And I like that (laughs) Harry himself is kind of like, I mean, yeah, I'm in a lot of danger all the time, but also like, okay, I don't know. He's like not sure what to make of her prediction because he doesn't seem to, I mean, he doesn't really trust her Mm -hmm. and nor should he. Is Hagrid a good teacher? Oh, that's an interesting question. Let's, yeah. The Buckbeak lesson isn't bad. Yeah. I think he gets, okay, well, let's talk about it. So. Well, again, it's one of these very, here are straight up set of instructions you have to follow. He doesn't teach them about hippogriff biology. No, but it's care of magical creatures. Oh, I guess, yeah. No, I think for what the class is supposed to cover, I actually think the hippogriff lesson is pretty good. He teaches them basically, like, what you have to do to be a keeper or to, like, be a human in the presence of a hippogriff. Now, first thing you got to know about hippogriffs is they're proud, said Hagrid. Easily offended, hippogriffs are. Don't never insult one. Because it might be the last thing you do. Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle weren't listening. They were talking in an undertone, and Harry had a nasty feeling they were plotting how best to disrupt the lesson. You always wait for the hippogriff to make the first move, Hagrid continued. It's polite, see? You walk toward him, and you bow, and you wait. And if he bows back, you're allowed to touch him. If he doesn't bow, then get away from him sharpish, cause those talons hurt. Right, who wants to go first? They're actually like way less monstery than like Hagrid's kind of like first instinct probably was. Yeah, they're downright majestic. Each and every one. But you know, I mean, he didn't come out the gate with, like, fucking dragons, which you know he considered. <laughs> if so, he could have got his hands on some. He would have. Been, uh... But no, hippogriffs, and they're useful. I mean, they're animal. they're like, you know, animals that you, you can fly on their backs. They are, they seem hyper-intelligent. Mm-hmm. Well, we, yeah, we learn as we get to know Buckbeak, who's kind of a character in this book. Not kind of, Buckbeak's a character yeah, in this Buckbeak's book. Yeah, Buckbeak's on the cover of yeah, this particular true. version that we have. He's a big deal, man. And he's hyper-intelligent. Mm-hmm. So I think Hagrid makes like a fairly good choice in planning this lesson. And fucking Malfoy just utterly derails it. I I guess before I reread this chapter, I had remembered it as Hagrid kind of being a moron and like not doing a very <laughs> good job of planning this lesson. But as I was reading it, I was like, this is also just no more dangerous than any of the other things that they are regularly engaging in at school. That is true. So, I mean, the school governors should take up Quidditch before. Well, and potions. And Snape potions. is like, if you don't do this right, it's just poison. Hagrid, yeah. Hagrid does a little better here than I remembered. Because at first... Right. And Draco deliberately sabotages the lesson. Disobeys which, direct orders. And, you know, he gets like... Yeah, he gets slashed in the arm, but... Madame Pomfrey, as Harry points out, Madame Pomfrey can literally regrow bones. So the fact that anybody believes that Draco is... Like mortally wounded. <laughs> I know. Maybe. That scene is so absurd. But because which, 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 Yeah, yeah, it is absurd. But uh, which brings me to... Hagrid is the only wizard who seems to suffer any consequences for anything in the wizarding world. Yeah. He's uh, thrown out of school for the... 
ostensibly opening the Chamber of Secrets. The chamber gets opened again, and he gets sent to Azkaban without trial, just like just in case. And and his, now he's in big old trouble because of his hippogriff. Yeah, they're gonna his hippogriff. <laughs> that was not a Sorry, word. That was not a word. Yeah, they're gonna put his hippogriff on trial, and Hagrid may or may not lose, lose his, his job, job on day I mean, one. Under that kind of scrutiny, like Madame Hoot should have been sacked. Years ago, Harry breaks his arm, uh... <laughs> like, daily. Because a rogue bludger, like, gets in. No, Hagrid is an interesting character because he does sort of serve as this, like, school-wide scapegoat. Yeah. Like, Hagrid gets the blame for everything. It's because he's a giant. Right, no, it's just prejudice. Giant, and people are... Yeah, yeah people the are Malfoys are bigots. Mm-hmm. So they want to get rid of Hagrid. That he even says, like this school, Malfoy says this school is going to the dogs with an oaf like that teaching classes. Like it's very specifically just prejudice toward Hagrid. And weirdly, I think I had internalized some of that because I remember being like, "Ugh, Hagrid is a terrible teacher." And later on, like his lessons get really shitty, but that's just because he's like terrified. He's super depressed. He's totally lost his confidence, mm-hmm. and so he like, of course, he's like, "Oh, we're not going to deal with anything like truly mad, like majestic anymore," because. They're, I guess it's all dangerous. Like, hippogriffs aren't that dangerous. Yeah. Unless you provoke them, which is true of horses. (laughs) Yeah, a horse will kick you in the face, man. Yeah, if you don't fucking listen to the person teaching you how to ride it, like, a horse (laughs) will break your back. Animals are, um, animals, basically is what I'm saying. They're wild creatures. Don't shout at them, especially when you've been explicitly told that they're very sensitive to insults, which is a really nice trait of the hippogriffs. They're just like, just be cool, man. Yeah. Respect me and I will respect you. I like of, that you have to bow to them. A lot of dignity. Yeah, fucking, they're so dignified. I love them. So, um, yeah, I feel bad for Hagrid. And obviously Malfoy is just the worst, especially in these chapters. Oh my goodness. He's such a shit bird. Well. We know that. I know. Well, and everybody knows that. No, that's the thing. Everybody knows that. Nobody on that campus thinks that Malfoy is not faking it. They're just letting him get away with it because, like, the schoolhouses are a terrible system and it's oddly partisan and just, it's the worst. All right. So, um... But which could bring us to Snape's Yeah, should we talk about Snape a little? Okay, so Snape in these chapters is literally abusive to Neville. Yeah. He not only does he bully him, but then he threatens to kill his toad. His pet. By making him Which as we talked by, about last episode, feed the... wizards have really close relationships with animals. I like know. Neville loves Trevor the toad. Now Aww. I do I do think that when Snape is planning to make Neville feed his potion to Trevor and if you know if the potion is messed up then it'll be poison and Trevor will die. Uh I do think that Snape was probably planning to administer an antidote to Trevor because he pulls out... I think it's just psychological torture. I don't think he would kill Trevor. Why don't you think he would kill Trevor? I don't know, because he pulls out the the regrow potion. I don't know, because Snape's good with antidotes, and I I just don't... I don't think he would do that. Maybe not. I feel like we've got no indication that he wouldn't kill a toad to make Neville cry. That's what the torture is there. Right. It's true. Who knows? We don't know. Uh, That is is so fucked up. So I'm going to project... That's a fireable offense. Anywhere. I'm going to project into the future a little bit because there's this whole fucking narrative where Snape is like redeemable and his treatment of Harry is redeemable because of like 
a reason that I guess a lot of readers of this series like not only buy but think is like beautiful and romantic. We will get to that, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Snape's treatment of Neville totally negates that. It's indefensible. For me. It's He's just a bad absolutely dude. indefensible. I don't give a shit what it turns out Snape's like dramatic romantic backstory is. Snape is a piece of shit to children. Not just Harry Potter. He's awful to Hermione, too. He also identifies the most vulnerable and then preys upon them. Yeah, relentlessly. Mm -hmm. Snape, this this can transition us to Boggarts because Snape is Neville's greatest fear in the world. And that's his teacher. Like, that person should not be around children yes so fuck the redemption narrative for snape snape is a bad person after the bogger in the wardrobe incident where snape comes out for nipple lupin should have gone to the hogwarts guidance counselor and said hey we gotta talk oh wait there's no guidance counselor i mean honestly i wouldn't be surprised if like behind the scenes lupin does go to dumbledore and be like um this seems like a problem and dumbledore is like lolly 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 <laughs> character building or no something. he doesn't say that he's probably Dumb- just like do you want some candy or dumbledore, i'm drunk pro- dumbledore is probably like sometimes our fears make us who we are yeah, I don't know. Some, some bullshit some bullshit god some dumbledoreism i mean he's keeping snape around for this like one horrifying specific purpose and it's the worst yeah like it's he's also, like, Neville is already a traumatized little boy. I know. Oh, God, Neville. So, Neville But let's body, talk about the Neville, Boggart. Neville body count. Yeah, let's talk about the Boggart. First of all, just finally somebody knows how to teach a class. <laughs> this is actually, it's like a teaching strategy. This is a flipped classroom where you do first and then you read. Yeah, you're so right. So, he's actually has, like, a pedagogical approach. Like... Lupin teaches them something in a in an actually teaching way, mm-hmm. which is cool. And they have to seemingly do a bit more than just point and say the magic word. They have to, you know, deals with a bit more force of will and right. And they have to come up with a creative solution to a problem, mm-hmm. which is like a really good life skill. This yeah. is the first class in which they've learned a single actual life skill. Yeah. Heaven forbid we teach them math. Right. Yeah. Lupin is teaching them coping methods for their greatest fears. And also Lupin is teaching them creative problem solving. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, you know, that's like a college and career readiness skill. Yeah. Now I'm just like talking about the fucking common core. The magic core. Um, The magic core. Uh, That's just unicorn hair. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wand joke. Whoa, wand and curriculum. So... Also, Boggart's are really inter- or the Boggart scene is really interesting. So the Boggart turns into your greatest fear. First of all, it seems to me unlikely that a bunch of 13-year-olds would be able to so readily identify their greatest fears. Like, it's weird to me that none of them are surprised by what comes out of the wardrobe. They're all just like, right. I'm afraid of mummies, and it's a mummy. Right. So I wonder if the Boggart... What, what's the exact description? So... It's a shapeshifter. It can take the shape of whatever it thinks will frighten us most. Okay. So So it's not necessarily your greatest fear. Your greatest fear, but whatever you will find frightening. Terrifying. That's a little different, I guess. Yeah. You're right. There's like, maybe there's like a semantic difference. Because most of our greatest fears would be existential. Right. So I guess it's not your like deepest existential fear. It's more your, your greatest physical 
kind of like horror movie. But I mean, so that always does surprise me in this scene because they all do have these really concrete physical fears. Mm -hmm. And some of them are weird. Like Seamus is afraid of a severed hand. No, the banshee. Oh, Dean is the hand. Yeah, Seamus is afraid of a banshee because he's um, Irish. Oh, that's so fun. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, Yeah, because he's Irish. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. That's nice. That's a good detail. Mm Mm-hmm. But, like, you know, Dean is afraid of a hand. Most of their fears are just, are, are sort of odd. So I wonder if that's just because they're, like, 13 and they're, like, really literal-minded or if the Bogart sort of seeks something that's, like, physically representable right. in your psyche. Right. I also wonder, so Harry has this whole internal battle where the first thing he thinks of is a Voldemort return to full strength. And kind of just, like, a thought experiment question I have is like what would the Bogart become if that was Harry's greatest fear like can the Bogart like see the future and like actually become what Voldemort will be like or will it sort of assume Harry's like version of that you know what I mean mm-hmm. so I just have I don't know Bogarts are really interesting also what does a Bogart look like no one knows Lupin says I know that's crazy that makes me kind of crazy when the, when the Bogart's in the dark yeah uh, Maybe it's just nothing. But it's some kind of presence because Mad-Eye Moody can see one way later on in book five. Mm. He can see it with his magic eye in in the cupboard. Oh, weird. It's like Schrodinger's Boggart. Oh, my God. So Moody seems like one of the only people on the planet who can, like, tell you what a Boggart is when it's not your fear. No, probably. Maybe he can just sense its presence. Yeah, or he can see whatever he himself would fear, which is, like, an empty bottle of Visine. <laughs> so let's do a, f- we haven't done a game like this in a while. Okay. Um, Since episode two. What would your Bogart be? It'd probably be a ghost. Yeah. I'm really afraid of ghosts. You really are. Yeah. And you truly believe in ghosts. I think I do. Like, I guess, I don't know. I don't believe in ghosts, but I'm terrified of them, which I guess means I believe in ghosts, so. On some level. Yeah. What, do you, what would you turn it most into to make ni- it funny? Most of my nightmares are about ghosts. You have, s- actually, Quibbler audience, here's a fun fact, if you sleep in our bed. <laughs> Alex has insane ghost nightmares, pretty often. Not anymore. I used to. You used to have them a lot. You still have them, like, every couple of weeks, though. Yeah, just like, uh shouting night terror ghosts and you always he always and you always wake up and you're just like ugh, it was just ghosts (laughs) like i don't even know what that means but clearly yeah they're like a major part of your psyche i love the movie ghostbusters because they've got fucking vacuums to take care of that shit you really do love the movie ghostbusters you know that's that's really cathartic so i don't like i don't like horror movies because the fucking ghosts win i don't want to see that they win in every horror movie (laughs) and ghostbusters they lose they get put into ghost jail and they have to stay there if you were if the ghost was a bogger what would you do would you do a ghostbusters themed oh my god yes i would Did I just give you a good idea? Absolutely. I was like, I don't know what I'd make it look like. Uh, yeah. I'd, uh, I'd definitely do a Ghostbusters themed. Um, some kind of, I don't know. I'd give, I'd imagine it getting sucked into a ghost trap. That's a good one. Anyway, what would your Boggart be? I don't, I don't have any. I have to say that I think I would be more like Molly Weasley. I think it would be like you dead. 
Oh, I'm sorry. Mine was just a mine was just like Slimer or whatever. No, I I but I don't really have any sort of like fears like that. My greatest sort of like irrational obsessive fear is car accidents. Mm. So it might be like I wonder if a bogart could turn into like the scene of a car wreck. But cuz I think that's the thing that I like kind of obsessively fear irrational cuz it's very rational and I think pretty universal to fear the loss of your loved ones but I think maybe it would yeah I, I think my it's weird but I think it would be some kind of like a car accident scene is what my bogger would be so how would you make it funny I think I would just have a bunch of clowns come out of it and they're fine <laughs> but like it'd well, be that, a clown that would be car. someone else's fear I know which is ironic but no but they'd be fun clowns not scary clowns they'd be like real nice like kind of Charlie Chaplin-y <laughs> like da 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 no that's not Charlie Chaplin but you know like they would be like fun circusy like they'd all be like squirting water out of their but you know like it'd be a clown car but then everybody would be yeah. fine I'm also kind of a hypochondriac so it might be like something medical themed hmm it's just a WebMD page I think yours would be a ghost, just considering really, yeah. truly how many ghost nightmares you've yeah. had in our I time what together. what ghost would look like. I have no idea. Do you know what they look like in your dreams? Depends. They're all kinds, man. <laughs> you go- have a really active ghost imagination. Yeah, I, I do. Um, it's really funny when they cut to the seventh years doing the Boggart exercise and Percy Weasley's is a broken condom. <laughs> well, it's funny because... Hermione doesn't get to do doesn't get to face the Bogart, but later on in this book, Hermione's actually is an existential fear because her Bogart during her final exam turns into Professor McGonagall telling her she's failed everything. <laughs> so Hermione is like on the one hand fucking fearless and on the other hand like so neurotic, like sweetheart. I know, I know like I'm worried about her her little mental health. I've been there, girl. You need to care less about A's. <laughs> that's my advice to Hermione um who's your unsung hero my unsung hero is Neville's grandmother who's just savage amazing fashion sense well I get we're meant to think that it's really weird but oh I think it sounds like she looks incredible stuffed vulture on her head red handbag green um she got the fox fur scarf Incredible. Yeah, she slays. Absolutely. And yeah, she just, yeah, she slays. And props to grandmother stepping in, raising the kid. She's like, Neville, it's a hard-ass world out there. I'm going to raise you right. Also, just like, an, a thing that J.K. Rowling has a lot of is like, shout out to like, non-traditional family arrangements. Mm-hmm. There's like, quite a few characters in these books being raised by people other than their parents, which is a Pretty common experience in the muggle world, so that's nice. Like, way to fucking legitimize those families, because Neville's whole family is his grandma. And, yeah, that's that's cool. Um, Mine is Buckbeak. Because, like, I don't know. Yeah. Destroy Malfoy. <laughs> Down with Malfoy. Buckbeak has, so far in these books, the only truly correct reaction to being talked to by Draco Malfoy. <laughs> which is just like, here, bleed, please. GTFO. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Buckbeak has the right fucking idea. And Buckbeak trusts Harry really um, all, right off the bat. So oh, no. Buckbeak has a really good sense of people. And I just think more people should scratch Draco Malfoy real hard. <laughs> Fuck that guy. 
This week is brought to you by the Monster Book of Monsters. You have to stroke it. And not like that, Percy. <laughs> Ew, Percy masturbation jokes. Ugh, they're uh, gonna follow he's us he's forever. He's moved way beyond masturbation at this point. Oh, that's true. He and Penelope. Hence yearly. the broken condom scene. Yeah. Which only happens in my my Fanfic. my raunt my my uh, kind of raunchy teen. Playboy picaresque like <laughs> fan fiction. The audio clips that you heard today come from Penguin Random House Audio, and it's Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. You should go to iTunes and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done that already so that you get it when it comes out. And also, please, please, please leave us a five-star rating if you feel so inclined. And a review would be extra lovely if you've got that little bit of time. We love to read them. We got some super nice ones in the last couple of weeks. You guys are lovely. Oh, tell your friends about this podcast. Because it seem, it turns out people have been doing that and we've been getting delightful and sweet new listeners via friends of friends. Yeah. So welcome to those people who heard about it by word of mouth. And if you haven't told anybody about The Quibbler yet, uh, do that today. That's your homework. Five <laughs> points to Hufflepuff. We also have a newsletter. It's tinyletter.com slash quibblerpodcast. You can also email us at quibblerpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know your boggart and what you'd make it turn into to make it funny. Yeah, please do. And follow us on the socials. We are on Twitter and on Instagram at quibblerpodcast. We posted a cool picture today of just a couple of the Harry Potter-themed Women's March signs that we saw. So that's pretty fucking cool. Um, Also, way to go, Women's March. Just, like, low-key, gonna plug that. That was cool. Next week's chapters. This week's were good, by the way. The Boggart in the Wardrobe, I think I've said this, like, four or five times at this point, but the Boggart in the Wardrobe is actually one of my favorite chapters in this series. It's very exciting. So the next chapters that we are reading are The Flight of the Fat Lady and Grim Defeat. More painting uh, drama. Such painting drama. Oh my god, we get to return to it. Can't be um, over this. And Grim Defeat is terrifying. So get ready, it's gonna get great. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, amigos. You've got to stroke them. Look. Get back, you scavy bracket. Back, you rogue. <laughs> <laughs>